All right, the sermon title this morning, you see it on the screen, You Anoint My Head with Oil. And as you know, if you've been out any time in the last eight weeks or so, you know that we have been methodically working our way through Psalm 23. And I know some of you are saying, is there any other way he does things here? No, not, not really. But in fairness, I was telling Eric was jibing me a little bit about that at the men's fellowship night that we had on, on Friday night, which that was a, a thank you for those that were able to be a part of that. That was a nice time to just have some conversations and fellowship and catch up with some brothers in Christ, but he was jabbing me a little bit about, you know, how, you know, I can only get through three or four words on a Sunday morning. I said, in fairness, I went through five or six chapters at a time in Deuteronomy, so let's just always reflect back on that. Let's have an average. If we average that out, we're doing pretty good, but you anoint my head with oil. We've been working through methodically this psalm, and we've observed that there's one primary overarching idea that is wanting to, that God wants to communicate to us, and it's, it's found or summarized in verse 3, and frankly, it's, repeat, it's summarized in another fashion in verse 6. We'll, Lord willing, get to that in the next couple of weeks and, and finish the psalm. But as we're looking at the primary theme of the psalm, it's that because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. It's all about God's care and provision, his complete care. I guess if I was going to label it, I would say God's complete care for his children. That's what this psalm is about. And there's a lot of different examples about what that complete care entails, and we've been looking at some of them. So there was two different motifs that we've seen or illustrations to bring out this idea of the intimacy that the God of the universe has with his children and the concern that he has for each one of us individually. David is writing this from a perspective of a very personal God, a very near God who's, who's very close to me. He's not distant and far away. And so we've observed all of these personal pronouns in this psalm as David is having this very, not abstract, but very finite and personal interaction with God or seeing the walk of faith that way as a personal walk of faith. And so we've observed that language as he talked about like telling you or telling others, like I'm telling somebody else what God has done for me as my shepherd, using that metaphor, one which he was very familiar with, having raised or shepherded sheep himself. And so he started out with that. And we had all of those specific illustrations of how God completely cares for his children. So he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He... Yahweh, God's personal name, the Lord. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And all of this is for his name's sake because that's the kind of God he is. He has a reputation of caring for his own. He does not abandon his children. He provides for his children. He completely cares for his children. And, and throughout there, we're seeing his leading. We're seeing his protection. We're seeing his correction. We're seeing his provision. And we've observed how each of those phrases, his di- direction, I think I already said that. So these different phrases bringing out those things. Then we get to verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now he switches to a direct conversation with God instead of telling you about his God or, or his shepherd in this illustration. He, or metaphor, he, he starts talking to God directly. I don't fear any kind of evil when your paths, your right paths, lead me to dark places or through dark places of danger because you're with me. I don't have any fear in those. 
And it's very similar to some of the verses from the New Testament, how perfect love casts out fear when I'm in the presence of, when I'm being held in the hands of, when I'm being protected by the God of the universe, I have no fear even in the dark places that are even feel like places of death or places where there is no life. So then he goes on, because you are with me. Now, what else about his presence? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We brought out how we're talking about with the rod, the protection from enemies from without, and with the staff, correction and direction. For us, personally, when we're straying, just nudging us in the right way, rescuing us with the crook of the staff when we fall into dangerous places, crevices. And then we talked about at times needing correction as he uses this thin staff to whack us across the rump at times we've talked about as, as needed, not to harm us, but for our benefit, to protect us. And then we changed the metaphor in verse 5 here. Now he moved, starts using additional language, actually even more personal than the language of the shepherd and the sheep because now we're talking about a host, a loving host and his beloved guest. So the loving host, now this is a a human metaphor. It's not trying to find or imagine or personify sheep and their relationship with the shepherd. Now we're talking about a personal, person-to-person, human relationship with, again, a loving host and a beloved guest. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So we talked about the provision, the presence of God, and the protection of God in that illustration or discussing the table before me. Now we get to you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. And those are the last two. There's three different parts or statements that are associated with that host and guest metaphor there in verse 5. And then the conclusion of the psalm, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So today we're going to tackle you anoint my head with oil. Now, as I just said, verse 5 represents this shift in imagery. We go from Yahweh or the Lord as the shepherd to Yahweh as the loving host. God generously welcomes David as his special guest. So from the perspective, again, talking directly to God, David is writing this like, you invite me to this table. You anoint my head with oil and my cup is running over through your provision, your complete care for me again. So there is an enhanced sense of intimacy here in this motif. There's this festive atmosphere that's being presented in association with God's care for his children. There's this abundance. There's this picture of the generosity of the Lord himself that's being presented here. This table of abundance this anointing of the head with oil and the cup that's running over. God's provision, protection, and presence are in focus just like we started with verse 5 there. The first part, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Now that, those themes have been true from the very beginning of the psalm and they continue as we move into this other illustration or way of looking at this. We observe that These elements 
are basically a, another way of showing us or presenting a principle to us in a way that would resonate with us perhaps differently than the shepherd and sheep motif or that metaphor did. And I brought out or commented that I think that's just the amazing kind of God we are, that he recognizes that we all aren't going to draw the same conclusions or have the same life experiences such that the same portions of Scripture speak to all of us in exactly the same way. I find it amazing that within one psalm, he could appeal to those who had some familiarity with the shepherd and sheep motif and at the same time then shift gears and present the same exact kinds of information to somebody who would be more familiar with being greeted as a beloved guest of a loving host instead. Now in this culture, there would have been those that were more familiar with one or more familiar with the other. In, in their life experiences, there may have been those who were more familiar with one or the other. And I think it's just interesting that that's how God chose to communicate his truths and the principles associated with a walk of faith to his children. And there's many, many examples of the diversity in which he seeks to present the same principles and the repetition through which he presents the same principles over and over and over again in his word. Why was that? And we touched on that many times. But I'll say it again. It's because we are hard of hearing, because we're hard-headed, because we're hard-hearted, just put hard in front of something and that's the issue that we're dealing with. That's the issue that God's dealing with. But he's faithful and he says, the entrance to my word gives life, it gives understanding to the simple and we're certainly simple-minded, aren't we? We're hard to reach. We're hard to get a hold of our thinking. And so God says, if you'll just enter into my word and keep spending time in my word, I'll just keep working on your simple-mindedness and try to reveal my truths to you despite yourself. Amazing God, a gracious God. So the abundance of God, when you're thinking about this more celebratory theme here, it's the abundance of God's blessing that's the primary theme. So when we look at you anoint my head with oil, there's not a tremendous amount to bring out here, but enough. There's enough. We start with you. Again, there's this focus on the good shepherd and the provision of God to meet man's need. Now, I'll tell you what, one of the primary, if not the primary theme of the Bible is the provision of God to meet man's need apart from man. And you can go from the very beginning and work your way all to the end and you can see over and over and over that theme of how mankind needs to recognize that apart from God's provision to meet his needs, he's hopeless and he's helpless. And in terms of positional truth, he's hellbound. If man cannot see that, whether he was Adam or he was Abraham or he was Paul, if man cannot see that apart from God's provision to meet his need, he is hopeless and helpless. There is no walk of faith. Faith is depending on somebody else to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's grace and faith sort of mixed together. And as you're thinking about the theme of the Bible, the theme of the Bible is to communicate that man has a need. That man on his own cannot provide for his own needs. And that would be true of the physical temporal realm that we live in. That's certainly true. You've likely experienced that yourself as seeking even to deal with the affairs of life is overwhelming. But that was absolutely and primarily the focus of the Bible is man's spiritual need. And so the point of the Bible is that when man chose to side with the opposition 
to accept and exchange Satan's lies for God's truth. That from that moment on, sin had come in and become this barrier that was separating man from a holy and righteous God. And so the first principle that needed to be communicated was that something was going to have to be done to deal with that estrangement brought about by man's sinful choices and that identification with a me-first attitude, that identification with a race of sinners now being identified with Adam and his decision to reject God, something was going to have to be done to change that identification or man would forever remain identified with sin and the death associated with that sin being identified with Adam. And so from very early on, you have the fall of man and you have the storyline beginning of how God was going to make a way to restore, to redeem, to reconcile all of those R words. What was lost and estranged from him back into a place of fellowship and unity and closeness with him. That's the message of the Bible on a positional front. That man was estranged from God, separated by his sin, and that somebody would have to do something to fix that because man could never fix the debt of their sin as they continued to be identified with that sinfulness. And so if we were trying to make right what was wrong, we have a problem in that God clearly communicated to mankind that the best efforts of mankind apart from him were viewed by him as filthy rags. That all of our works of righteousness or efforts to make ourselves right fall short. Communicated again in the New Testament with Romans chapter 3 saying, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no not one. But fallen short, it even assumes that there would be people who were attempting to make themselves right. To polish up the outside of their sinfulness in a way that would make them acceptable to God. It presumes that there would be some who would try. Knowing that there were some that would try in their own different ways, to make themselves acceptable to God. And there's a lot of ways of doing that. Through self-help, through religion, through religious rituals, trying to make yourself acceptable to God. And so as you're tracking this story through the Bible, you have that picture of mankind desiring to make themselves right, knowing that there's this separation or estrangement between them and a holy God, but yet having no means for dealing with that. So God in his love, he promised them from the very first chapters of Genesis that I'm going to have a solution for your sinfulness, but it's going to involve an innocent being substituted in the place of the guilty. It's going to, there's going to be a savior one day. There's going to be a redeemer that will come, that will take your place, that will die in your place, that will pay the debt that you owe. In the meantime, I'm going to show you different pictures and symbolism and illustrations of that. It's starting from the very beginning where innocent animals were killed so that Adam and Eve could be clothed in the skin or covered with the skin of an innocent lamb or innocent animals. And then the picture of animal sacrifices where innocent spotless lambs were executed in the place of the guilty. Where their blood was shed and their blood ran red to pay the price or symbolize an atonement for the guilty, for the the dead of the guilty. And this symbolism that there would be, some innocent would have to take the place of the guilty, otherwise you personally would have to die. So this faith in God's provision of a future or a, a future redeemer, a future Messiah, a future rescuer, 
who would fix or die in the place of those sinful individuals. And so that's how a man was justified by faith alone in God's provision to deal with their sinfulness in the Old Testament. But there's so much more to that as the story unfolded. Then you had the door on the, the, the blood on the doorpost. You had the sacrifice system that was instituted with the law where again you had all these pictures of how mankind could never meet up to God's holy standards. Then you have all of this building up to the Savior is here. The Savior is born. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, the Apostle Paul says. The Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He has come to seek and to save those who are lost. And so as you think about even we're coming into the holiday season before you know it, I know that's blasphemy to say that right now, but that's coming. But as we think about the holiday season, it culminates with a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. But the birth of Jesus Christ in and of itself would mean nothing other than he was born to be the savior of the world, the propitiation for mankind's sin. And so Jesus becomes that redeemer that was looked forward to in the Old Testament, who they had had their faith in his future coming in the Old Testament. Now he comes and he dies on a cross, though he was sinless and perfect, Though he was the spotless Lamb of God, he died in the place of sinners. So as he dies in the place of sinners, he takes all of our sins and he bears the debt that's owed for our sinful choices on himself and his own body on the tree. And he takes and marks and nails a certificate of debt being satisfied on the cross where our sins are effectively paid in full. The debt is satisfied so that the certificate of debt that was standing against you and I could be marked as paid in full, fully satisfied. You could be set free from that weight or that burden of that debt, but only if that blood was applied to your account. Only if that payment was applied to your account. And the only way God's payment through the work of his son, Jesus, on Calvary could be applied to your account is by simple faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. By trusting and accepting and putting your confidence in what he had done for you. And the moment you decided to put all your eggs in that basket, to trust completely in his death, burial, and resurrection, on your behalf, that moment, you were now found to be right or righteous on the basis of his righteousness being imputed to your account, being credited to your account. That very second you were found to be in a right standing with a holy God. Not on the basis of anything you had done, but on the basis of his righteousness having been now applied to you. And that's where the clothed in the righteousness of God, that picture of being clothed in the skins or of the animals that were sacrificed, it all comes back full circle. Now that's only half the story though, friends. As we think about the message of the Bible, that's a message of positional dependence or a need for God to fix our problem of estrangement due to sin from Him. But at the same time, that same need for God to provide a way for us to be cleansed from the effects of sin in our day-to-day lives and the estrangement that comes from rebelling against him over and over and again, choosing to alienate ourselves from him, not positionally anymore, but practically choosing not to trust him, choosing not to walk by faith, choosing to do our own thing instead of follow the plan and path that he has for our lives. God recognized that that was the equivalent of bringing about an ongoing kind of death as we were living life apart from him. A lifeless existence, even though we were guaranteed to one day go to be where he is because of our having accepted by faith his sacrifice on, his, on our account and being sealed in his family, being guaranteed a spot 
with him in heaven, being adopted as sons, being put in a place where he calls us his child, and he now says, I'll never let you go. So positionally, that was true, but we can, as children of God, children of faith, we can be walking through life in this practical, lifeless state of rebelling against him, not walking in union with him, not enjoying intimate fellowship with him. So the Bible's message over and over and over again, it presents these decisions on the part of men of faith and women of faith as they were tasked with choosing as a practical reality already now being redeemed or justified before a holy God, already being justified by faith. Now, will they walk in faith? Will they walk by faith? Will they walk in dependence on him? Will they see that apart from his ongoing provision in their life, they could do nothing that could make God happy or bring God glory? Would they recognize that not just once in order to be saved, to be justified. But would they recognize that day after day after day, moment after moment after moment, that apart from your gracious provision for my every spiritual need, I could not live a life of faith. I could not walk in a way that would bring you glory. I could not find the right paths. I would have no clue what the right paths were apart from your direction in my life. Would they recognize that? Would that man of faith wake up every morning, have his mentality renewed where he would again say, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, I need you. Come and cleanse me. As David would even write later on in the Psalms, he would write, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Identify even for me wicked ways that are in me. Make me aware of my transgressions. Put me back in a place where I'm right with you Not positionally, but practically. I'm renewed. I'm restored. You restore my soul. Not positionally, but practically. I'm in a place where I'm right with you and I'm walking with you and I'm enjoying life with you. Where I'm taking advantage of this table of plenty, this table of bounty that has been set before me. I'm mentally, practically, I'm pulling up a seat at that table. I'm walking through the door of the gracious, loving host and I'm saying, I want to have this intimate fellowship with you as your beloved guest. I don't want to stand outside the door of your tent or your castle or your house or whatever it was, probably most, most likely a tent scenario here. But in any way, I don't need to stand outside the door of your tent in the wasteland of the world. I can walk through that door moment by moment, day by day and dine with you and relate to you and fellowship with you and be renewed by you and have your provision applied to my daily life and my daily needs. So that's the emphasis here with this personalized view of God that David has. I'll tell you what, as long as you see God as somebody that's somewhere in outer space, you'll never experience Psalm 23, the way that David is experiencing this. He'll keep wrestling your way through the circumstances of life. Trying so hard to overcome the hard things. Wallowing in despair as you lack the capacity and the capability of providing to meet your own needs. Living a life characterized by Franticness, anxiety, 
fear, pressure, stress, sadness, loneliness, emptiness, no purpose, no meaning, no lasting joy or satisfaction. And we are so foolish that when presented with dining with the king of kings and enjoying the table he's provided and presented in front of us or what I just talked about we say I'll take the wasteland and God says child why do you insist on staying outside of the tent in the wasteland of the world wallowing and wasting your life when you could come sit at the table with me but anyway, David understands that. You have this he and me, if you want to look at the first half of this psalm, and then you and I for the second part of the psalm. But you, the believer, is the beneficiary of God's constant care. It's completely one-sided. God is the one producing the action. He's the one producing the protection and the provision and the direction It's God that's doing that. It's not us. So that's takeaways that we've had before and we continue to, like a broken record, repeat them over and over as we go through this psalm. But I'll tell you what, you can only be the beneficiary of God's constant care in in, in the sense of experientially appropriating by faith that provision if you make a choice to do so. Let the Lord have his way with you. Choose you this day whom you will serve. There's a positive volitional response where God doesn't force his provision on you. He doesn't force his direction on you. He doesn't force you to appropriate by faith all of the blessings that he makes available. So then we get to what's the blessing in this specific context. In this specific context, this whole psalm has been about God's provision and his complete care and his blessing for his, kid, for his children. But here we have you anoint my head with oil. Now this particular imagery is hard to appreciate due to cultural dissonance or differences where we can't really relate to this particular custom. But the practice of anointing with oil is used in at least four different contexts scripturally or in the Bible. Now the first concept, the first context is consecrating or setting something apart. So we start with inanimate objects or things set apart for worship where oil would be used to set something like that apart. And here's an example of that that we can find in Exodus chapter 30 verses 25 through 28. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense. The altar of burning off, of burnt offering with all its utensils and the laver and its basic. So there's an example of anointing something with oil that's not even human, inanimate objects. 
And you can find another example in Genesis where Jacob anoints a altar that he builds. He anoints that with oil. There's an aspect to that of being set apart, being consecrated. Now, that's not the context of day in and day out anointing with oil, but just want you to know that there are other contexts of anointing with oil. Here's inanimate objects. Then, you have anointing with oil, anoint my head with oil, and it would be the head in this instance, as it related to calling out or setting apart a prophet or calling somebody to a specific task. So set apart for something very specific. And here you have an example of God speaking to Elijah about Elisha. And here's what it says in 1 Kings 19.16. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. So you have, we'll get to that in a second, another example of a king being anointed. Uh, David was anointed. We'll look at the example of Saul. But, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So there was this symbolic anointing with oil to symbolize somebody being set apart for a very specific or official position or role or task. And there you have an example with a prophet. Here's an example with a priest. And this applied to Aaron and his sons, Exodus forty fifteen. In fact, if you were to look back at Exodus thirty twenty five through 28, if you were to read verses 29 and 30, they would say the same thing. But you shall anoint them, speaking of the sons of Aaron, the high priest, as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. So we're still talking about this consecrating or setting something apart by anointing someone's head with oil. Here's another example as it relates to kings. We already saw one with Jehu. Now here's an example with Saul, and of course David who's writing this. He had his head anointed at some point in his life by Samuel as well, as he was chosen as the successor to be king after Saul. But in 1 Samuel nine sixteen and then ten one we read, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man, God is speaking to Samuel, a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? And so there's examples of the same kind of thing where oil is being put on the head of somebody who's being marked for a specific official position or a a holy or consecrated kind of a task for the Lord. And it's symbolized by this anointing with oil on their heads. Now, it wasn't the exact same kind of oil when you look at the holy oil. There was a specific formula for that that wasn't to be used in any other context. And I know, I know that's something you'll race to look up when you get home. But it, it's not the same exact formula for each one of these things. We're not going to get bogged down with that. But this cultural custom of anointing a head with oil, there's some examples there in a consecrating or official ceremony kind of a way. Now, other examples of anointing with oil can be found in a more, in a New Testament illustration too. One is having somebody's anointed with oil for healing. So this is referring to the disciples in Mark chapter 6, verse 13. But it says, And they cast out many demons 
and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. There's some dispute about did they anoint their, their injury or just anoint them on their head like was the cultural custom associated with greeting somebody or being a good host, which we'll get to in a second. Now, the other aspect of it is anointing oneself or their head with oil primarily for personal care. So you anoint my head with oil, there is an aspect of personal care contextually that could be true of this statement. And here's an example from Ruth 3.3. 3. Therefore, this is Naomi talking to Ruth about Boaz. But therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself as part of the cleansing or personal care routine that somebody would go through. And anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. You see that this was a fairly common practice just for personal care within the nation of Israel, having really nothing to do with this host and guest motif that we're talking about. You can see this in a number of different warnings that are made to the nation of Israel about how somebody else is going to get to benefit from their possessions or from their land if they continue to operate in rebellion against God. And here's one example from Deuteronomy where you can see a cultural tradition when you read into this warning. Now Deuteronomy 28.40 says, You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. Now, this is a warning about turning away and rebelling against God and the consequences in time that would occur through rejecting him. But it also speaks to the idea that this is what normally would have happened. If this is a warning about what will happen when God's curse is upon them, when they are refusing to respond to him in faith, when they're suffering the consequences of their rejection of him and rebellion against him, but it, it, as you read through this, you can see that this must have been a part of their cultural tradition to anoint themselves with the oil from these olive trees. Now, there isn't any great passage that actually talks about this happening in real time like as a cultural thing. This is probably the closest thing we have to it in the Old Testament. We're going to see some New Testament examples a little bit later, but it seems and most of the scholarship that I read about this is that it was a custom just as part of the personal care routine of those in the nation of Israel to use olive oil as a part of their, again, normal daily, maybe not daily, but normal care routine or regimen. And so, you know, for some of you who are looking for a cheaper option to some of the products that are more expensive today, olive oil, you know, it's sometimes on sale, get a big jug of it. You know, maybe the Arbon, you know, Mary Kay, whatever the options are, I don't know. Maybe, uh, <laughs> man, am I digging a hole here? <laughs> Old Spice will throw a man's example in there. <laughs> maybe the cost keeps going up and you're just like, you know what, it's just water and olive oil from here on out. But the other context, or the fourth context, is honoring guests. And of course, that's where we're at here. You anoint my head with oil. That's the motif that we're talking about, is a, again, loving host welcoming a beloved guest into his 
into his home or his residence, whatever the makeup of that might be. So that's our present context. And in that context, before beginning the meal, the host would anoint the honored guest with oil by pouring a small portion on his head. And the gesture... The gesture revealed more about the host than anything else. I I hope that's what comes out after all this that we've been talking about here this morning. This is more revealing as as the psalm has been. It's the focus is on revealing the character of God. It's it's not about revealing our character. It's an invitation for us to take advantage and appropriate the character of God as it relates to his love his love and concern and compassion and care for us. So it's it's the character of God and, and who he is that's being put on display here now through this imagery of this host. So it revealed more about the host than anything else. It demonstrated two things, but one, it demonstrated his wealth or resources and his generosity, which is speaking of his character, but his wealth and his generosity. Somebody who didn't have the capacity for blessing his guests by anointing his head with olive oil, which was a precious commodity, especially when it was scented as it often was here. That person who didn't have the wealth to bless his guests in that way couldn't have done that. But you know what David is saying? God has the resource to do that. Eric was even reminding me about the cattle, the cattle on a thousand here on a thousand hills. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the rocks in every mine. So if I'm in him and I'm his heir, if I'm his son, if I'm a prince of the king of heaven and if he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, sorry to steal that from you, Eric, but then I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If God didn't have great resources and great wealth, he couldn't provide for our needs. You have to remember who you're dealing with. When you're dealing with human beings, they can't provide for your needs because in many instances they don't have the resources to do so. God always has the resources to do so because he's an infinite God. He's an infinite God who has no limits to what he's capable of doing but now bring it to the personal level. He has no limits in what he's capable of providing for you in your life. There's no limit to what he could do for you. Do you trust him? Do you believe that? Do you recognize that? You'll never walk into his tent to this meal that he has prepared for you. You'll never take a seat at his table practically and experientially if you're not convinced that that's the right tent to wander into, right? You got to go in there believing and understanding that he's capable and that he's generous and that he's the kind of God that wants to share his great wealth with you, his child. So there's one thing. The other thing is this the gesture reveals or demonstrates the guest, sorry, the host's care, concern, and compassion for his guest. Care, concern, and compassion. Just having the resources, just being wealthy, or having a generous character wouldn't mean much if that host didn't have a specific intimate or intense interest in you or the guest in general, but David is saying in me. 
He anoints my head with oil. He has an intense interest in me. Not only does he have intense wealth, but he has an intense interest in me. And he wants to demonstrate that by this gesture of anointing my head with oil. Now, this oil was normally olive oil. We saw that from Deuteronomy. Enhanced with a variety of perfumes. That's what was used. Now, you're trying to understand, we're trying to wrap our mind around this metaphor, this illustration, and it's not something we're that familiar with. But in a climate where dry skin was a problem, especially for travelers, anointing with oil was a refreshment. It was very soothing. This is an arid climate. This is a dry climate. We have trouble picturing this climate, but because we don't live there. We live in actually a fairly humid climate. We have a lot of rainfall. We have a lot of snow. We have a lot of humidity in the summer. We're not a dry climate. In the winter, yes, humidity levels can get down to maybe 25, 30%, maybe lower rarely than that. For, for the most time, we're a 50 plus percent humidity area where we live. But a, a desert-like arid climate wasn't like that. You notice that a lot of times right away when you travel, right? It doesn't take long if you go to a desert-like place before your lips are cracking, your skin is drying out, your eyes are drying out, right? So this is the climate that they lived in. And when we're thinking about this gesture then of anointing somebody with oil, being anointed with oil, it was associated with one's well-being and blessing. When you talk about the well-being side of it, just even the personal care part of it, we discussed that earlier. It was a luxury to be able to care for yourself in this cleansing, self-maintenance type of a way by having access to oil to pour over your head and your body, your skin. But there's an incredible picture of intimacy here too as you're thinking about he anoints my head with oil. The host is caring for his guest. When you're talking about something that's closely associated with personal care, now you have a host that is attending to the personal care or cleanliness of his guest by pouring oil over his head. I was trying to think of a modern day equivalent to that. It might be that when you have guests over to your home, you apply some moisturizer to them. They walk through the door and you say, hold tight before we set up at the table that I've prepared for you. I've got some chapstick I want to put on your lips. (laughs) I might start doing that. It was a part of caring for the effects of their, their travel, having been in a dry climate and drying out, here I'm going to restore some moisturizer to your life so that you're feeling relaxed, that you're feeling soothed, that you don't have parched lips as you sit down to try to eat this meal that I've set out on a table before you. So this is all tied to this same motif of the host that is greeting this beloved guest. And there's such an intimacy there, it's hard to even really picture it. But I want to show you a couple of quick verses about how this being anointed with oil, it was always associated with 
blessing, somebody being blessed or, or having somebody else bless you. So here we have it in Ecclesiastes 9.8. Let your garments, this is like, this is my wish for you. My wish for you to prosper. My, my blessing, this is my blessing on you is, let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. So next time you need to give some kind of a toast, you know. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. This was this idea of being associated with a blessing. My life is blessed if I'm in a position where being provided for me is access to this soothing oil on my head. Psalm 92.10, later on in the Psalms says, Psalms, says, but my horn you have exalted like a wild ox, speaking of the blessing that a person has. I have been anointed with fresh oil. It's this idea of being blessed by God that David is getting at. It's a great blessing to me that you anoint my head with oil. David is effectively saying, I am tremendously blessed to have a seat at the table of plenty that God has put in front of me and to be tremendously blessed by having my head anointed with oil. It's just, that's the, the symbolism there. Psalm 133, 1 through 2a, I love this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Is that a good thing? Is it great when we're not at odds with each other? When we can forgive each other? When we can have thick skin and just say, you know what? Who knows what they meant by that, but I'm going to move on from that and I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to love them to death. I'm going to love them so much they're not going to be able to stand it. (laughs) When we're doing that, friends, there's going to be a sense of unity. It's as we focus on Jesus Christ individually, he's going to have outflowing from us his love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, that's all, those are all words that speak to a natural unity that comes from each one of us individually enjoying the Lord. And as we enjoy the Lord, when we come together, we're going to have a sacrificial, loving, gracious, forgiving mindset toward one another. And it's going to be great to spend time together and eat a meal together. Now it says this, it is like, so he's describing unity, but it is like the precious oil upon the head. He's talking about something that is very good and pleasant. It's something that represents a blessing. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. Now, are you picturing this? A couple of you guys with beards out there. Jeff, you picturing this? The oil on your head, enough of it that it's like running down your face and you're just like, oh, this is just great. (laughs) There's some cultural limitations here, friends. (laughs) But the picture is the soothing blessing associated by being in the care of the good shepherd and in our context here now, the host, the loving host. He's, he's, he's putting on, uh, he's providing a place of generosity and a place of hospitality for us that meets our every need. Now, one of the things that you have to understand about this is that a host was under no legal obligation to anoint his guest. It was an optional gesture of generosity and hospitality reserved for beloved guests. And as you think about God's grace and love being the focal point of this whole psalm, they're taking center stage. They're front and center. You just see more of that here. God doesn't have to anoint your head with oil. God doesn't owe you anything. 
If God gave you what you deserved, you would spend all of eternity apart from him in the lake of fire. It's all grace. God giving us what we do not deserve as he ministers to our every need in terms of even our need to be reconciled to God and then our need for him to continue to provide for every aspect of our Christian life, to meet our every need, to supply our every need. It's by his riches that our needs are supplied, not through our own wealth. It's through his wealth and his love and his generosity and his blessing on our lives, but he didn't have to do that. And you only anoint those with oil, those heads with oil, who you cherish and love. That's what motivates you to want to do that. And that was made abundantly clear in two interactions with Jesus. And you can find one of them in Luke chapter 7 where Mary actually anoints his feet with oil and wipes his feet and washes his feet with her hair. But let's just for an example of how it's only somebody you care about and love greatly that you would do this to. Look at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll pick up in verse 3. It says this, in being in Bethany, this is there, that's where Jesus was, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, has this story endured? In- interest- that's an interesting question. Fr- hey, friends, you, you can't make this up. You can't make this up. <laughs> so interesting question has the has the story endured and the story endured because it was included in something that God said would never fade away it was included in something that he said not one word of this will be lost so it's endured in that sense but it was a picture of how somebody saw tremendous value in Jesus Christ and took what resources they had in a desire to lift him up or exalt him or bless him, and they poured it on his head. And we know there was great value in that based on the response of the others who couldn't see 
why honoring Jesus Christ and ministering to him was of such great value. They couldn't see that. They thought there must be other causes that are more important than lifting up and exalting him. They didn't quite get it. They didn't even understand the real, his real purpose in being there. Not yet. But there's an example of, it's sort of, our example is a reverse application of that because it's not about us showing our love for him or showing how much we cherish him. There is a question to ask oneself though. Is Jesus beloved enough that you would expend the valuable resources available to you on exalting him, on serving him, on anointing him as a cherished guest in your life? Would, would you do that? And the answer is too often no. But the real question, that's not our application this morning. Our real question, the focus is what he's done for us. The psalmist is picturing God's complete care and desperate concern and love for you, his child. Now, the psalmist David is speaking about himself, but the application is to all of God's children. God's loving and complete care for his children is enduring and it's infinite. This, you anoint my head with oil, this is not a one-time event in view here. God continuously and intimately applies healing and soothing oils to souls that are dried out from wandering in the arid climate surrounding them. Is your soul dried out from wandering in the arid climate of the world? A world that is desolate of anything that could provide any nourishment for your soul? God wants to continuously apply the healing oils, the soothing oils to your soul. He wants to continuously anoint your head with oil. All you need to do is stop by the Lord's house to enjoy His ongoing blessing. The table's always prepared. The anointing oil is always in hand. The cup is always going to be overflowing. We'll get to you got to stop by his house, though. you got to go call on him. you got to go visit him. Involve him in your thinking and in your life. That's how his blessings get poured out in your life. Not by distancing yourself from him. Not by ignoring him. Not by doing your own thing and being pre- preoccupied with your own life. Not by refusing to acknowledge Him. His plan for your life, His purpose for your life, His will for your life. Not by refusing to allow Him to speak to you through His Word. Ignoring what He wants you to know. There's no soothing refreshment in that. There's, no, there's not a God's blessing in distancing yourself from Him. Do you recognize the cap- capability the wealth and generosity of your host? Do you desire the renewal, joy, and healing that he alone can provide? Do you realize the need to repeatedly avail yourself of his anointing? Do you understand the futility of seeking that blessing elsewhere? It's like one guy has the resources to anoint your head with oil. In the whole community and you're going door by door knowing that he's the one who has that resource 
And you're going to all of the wrong houses looking for nourishment, looking for blessing, looking for soothing for your soul. And you know where it's available, but you just won't go in and visit him. That's what we do at times. You are the special guest of the God of the universe. You are invited to stop over all of the time. There's no advance warning necessary. There is if you want to visit me. (laughs) No advance warning necessary. Pop on by. Anytime you want. He is resourceful and capable. He desperately cares for you. He desires to generously lavish his provision on you. He wants to interact with you intimately. He wants to interact with you continually. Do you see how special you are? How blessed you are? The question is, will you appropriate in an experiential and practical way the blessing, in this case the anointing of your head with oil that God wants to provide? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for our time in your word. Thank you that you love us so much that you've provided to undertake for and care for our every need, that you are in the business of blessing and restoring us, anointing our heads with oil, soothing us from the dryness of the world around us. Moisturizing our souls. Thank you that that's the kind of God you are. Thank you that that's the reputation that you have. Thank you that you never waver, you never change, and you never fail. Pray that we would see that in a real, personal, experiential, and practical way. That we would appropriate by faith your blessing and provision in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.